Hello, everyone, and welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast to fill your soul, challenge your mind, and make you brave. I'm your host, Joy Clarkson, and an evangelist for all things good, true, and beautiful. So make yourself a cup of tea, find somewhere comfortable, and let's dive in to this week's episode. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to Speaking with Joy. Today, I have a very special guest on today. Welcome, Meg Highland. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. Meg and I have been scheming and dreaming about doing this (laughs) podcast for about a year and a half. That's true. So, Meg is at my flat in St. Andrews. We are sipping tea and eating cookies furtively. (laughs) I thought that I probably should not be eating cookies as I opened this, but it is warm and in my hand, so... (laughs) It's irresistible. Yeah, so Meg's going to have to talk in a little while, so I can... (laughs) (laughs) So Meg and I today are going to talk about Meg's project, which is called Women of a Thousand AD. But before we get to that, which is really fascinating and is exactly what it sounds like, (laughs) um, which is looking at the lives in all areas of the world of different women at 1000 AD. Mm -hmm. But before we get to that, Meg, why don't you give us a little introduction to who you are and what you're interested in and what you do while I finish this cookie. (laughs) Sounds good. Thank you, Joy. Um, So my name is Meg Highland. I'm kind of in between degrees right now, but I'm originally from Wisconsin in the United States. We've got a few listeners from Wisconsin. Oh, excellent. Hello, cheeseheads. (laughs) (laughs) And um, my family immigrated to Scotland six and a half years ago because my parents teach at St. Andrews in the Divinity Department, where Mm -hmm. Joy's doing her PhD. Mm -hmm. And so I did an undergraduate degree in medieval history at St. Andrews, which is where the a thousand years ago side of my interest comes in. But then I've most recently completed a master's in Celtic and Scottish studies at the University of Edinburgh. I'm actually going to my graduation a few days after this is recorded. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and for that, I was looking at more modern stuff, but looking at women. So I did a master's looking at a women's work song in the Scottish fishing industry. Mm. Kind of niche, but basically about... Niche, but so interesting. <laughs> yeah, basically about women singing while they gut herring, kind of the late 19th, early 20th centuries. So I guess you could say that my interest in medieval women kind of combines these two things, an interest in women's history and stories that don't always get told. Mm. You know, history is kind of infused into our lives all the times in ways we don't realize. Mm. But those narratives can get kind of repetitive and shaped in a way to leave out some stories. Mm. And so I think that's what's always motivated my interests is like Mm. trying to find something that people haven't looked at and then see if I can... untold stories. Exactly. And then see if I can apply my analytical skills and digging up research to see if there's anything interesting there. So that's kind of my academic interests. And I'm applying to do a PhD in Edinburgh. And I've also got some work experience in music and tourism, just kind of stuff here and there. <laughs> Meg has led the, the tours that I have often watched go around St. Andrews. Yes. And lovely little, in the summers, they have these little trains. Yeah, it's just like open-air bus with a fake train on the front. <laughs> you know, I found that this is almost ubiquitously true. Everyone I know that gets caught in this weird research and PhD life, mm-hmm. which is that we all have this enjoyment or like we feel driven to kind of hoard knowledge. Do you know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? Like we have our little treasure box of things uh-huh. that we're always constantly going, oh, another, another morsel, which I shall put in my treasure box. <laughs> yeah. 
And I feel like I'm always doing that with works of art and with mm. music, particular music and literature, I think is what I tend to do most. Um, but I think that you do that with stories mm. in history. Mm-hmm. You're always mm-hmm. kind of storing away. Yeah. yeah. And like just this drive to learn about other people and other stories. And I think for me, one of the other things that also motivates it, which I think is true for mm-hmm. you too, with the podcast and everything is... As soon as I learn something, I want to share, share it with other people. Yeah, it's not hoarding. That's the wrong word. Yeah. You want to like put it in your treasure box and then open up the treasure box for everyone else. It's like you're gathering resources that you can then share with other people, but yeah. the resource is knowledge. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, and I mean, I'm sure you probably feel this way too, and being from a family where you guys just have a lot of knowledge going around. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I don't know if I'm... Oh, wait, I mentioned my parents yeah. are academics. Yeah, and, and my actually, sister's an artist. <laughs> yeah, and your dad actually helped me with a portion of my PhD, so... There we go. Uh, <laughs> hashtag Bonaventure. Someday. <laughs> Someday I've got to do a... If a, he a, understood hashtags, he'd appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's pretty good on Facebook, so... Yeah, yeah. But he hasn't ventured into Twitter. No. no. <laughs> he doesn't even fully understand what it is. Yeah. <laughs> but I always I always had this sense of just having been given like a glut of resources mm, when we're mm-hmm, in these places mm-hmm. and kind of wanting to be able to have the opportunity to turn that around and give that to people who, you know, a relatively small amount of people are going to be able to end up in like where we are, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. not a relatively small amount of people should have access to the ideas and knowledge and things we're experiencing. Exactly. I think that's a really good way to put it. And I kind of feel like, especially because I grew up in an academic environment, and it's easy for me to take for granted my Mm. access to these resources. So like, you know, some people when they leave an academic institution, they can't read academic journals anymore. But I can always borrow my parents' password. (laughs) It's authorized. They allow me to do that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, yes. And the Good PDFs are a love language amongst Mm -hmm. scholars Mm -hmm. that you can always go in. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, and so it's like, I kind of feel I have this responsibility Mm. to use my resources I have to try to spread knowledge and enrich people's lives. Yeah. And and share the stories. And also I think I feel you have a responsibility when you're in a position Mm -hmm. of relative privilege of any Mm -hmm. kind to try to challenge the ways that certain narratives are privileged. Mm -hmm. So like one of the things that, you know, for example, women is a good example. It's Mm -hmm. like, you know, when you study, Medieval Scottish history, yeah. finding the women in it is pretty hard. It's yeah. like, oh, there was Queen Margaret of Scotland, and <laughs> that's about it. It's Canada, main one for the next 600 years. And you're, like, you're like, the human race continues. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so surely there were women around. Exactly. Every well, single one of these people was born. No, yeah, I know. And I always think of that, too, even, like, when I've done bits on church mothers, if you'll call them that, like Macrina mm-hmm. or Perpetua, all these different people, I... The response I always get is this kind of just like shock of I mm. haven't heard of them. Yes. Yes. And so I think it's that, I hate to be this person, but it's that TED talk about <laughs> the danger of the single story. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I think what you do, which is perhaps where I'll transli- transition <laughs> into, is such a good way of kind of joyfully and excitedly challenging that single story. Exactly. Because, and I think the motivation and passion to do it comes from how I feel the surprise yeah. when I learn, like, as we'll talk about later, for my Women of a Thousand Project, one thing I'm committed to is showing stories from all over the world, yeah. and I'm constantly confronted with the faults in my own education, yeah. and the gaps in the narrative that I was given, even mm-hmm. as a student of history at a Where we've had institution. Great. Exactly. When you've had a good education and opportunities, there's still enormous gaps, and, you know, I feel shocked, like, when I read 
For example, in the year 1000, both the Liao Empire in Mongolia Mm -hmm. and Korea were being ruled by women. And these women were at war with each other. And it's like, you don't hear that sort of thing. You you know, you're just kind of like, wait, what? How did I not know about that? That's how I felt when I discovered Hildegard Bingham. Oh, yeah. She's she's boss lady. Mm -hmm. Okay, so with all this said then, tell us a bit more about, and this is, I think you had just started it recently, or you just put the website when I first talked. Yeah, uh uh-huh. But the Women of a Thousand, and kind of what the idea behind that is, and some of what you've been doing. Okay, so there's different reasons I got into it. I guess first I'll say what the project is, Mm -hmm. and then I'll kind of explain how I got there. So the Women of a Thousand Project is, I like to draw, Mm -hmm. and I actually first got interested in drawing historical recreations because I did um, historically accurate Hogwarts founders. (laughs) And so I got really into researching, like, but what would they have actually been wearing if Hogwarts was founded a thousand years ago? (laughs) Everybody draws them dressed like the A really important question. Exactly. These are the things that keep me up at night. No, I wish. (laughs) But, yeah, and so I, you know, from that I kind of got, I caught the bug Mm -hmm. of historical reconstruction drawing. So what I do is I draw, because I really like the idea that in the year 1000, all these people were alive at the same time. But like you said, there's no one single story of Mm -hmm. women in history. And so, you know, a Jewish woman in Germany in the year 1000 was living a very different life than a Japanese court woman in the year 1000. Mm -hmm. And they were in totally different women's history trajectories. And yet some of the challenges they faced were the same, some were different. And so what I do is I research women who were alive in the year 1000 and there's kind of two categories. There's women whose names we know. Mm. Often they're queens or nuns or something like that. And then when there's a country where we don't have written records, I use archaeology mm. to reconstruct as close as possible what the average woman would have been like. Would have been like. So mm. there's but the idea is to kind of create this almost comparative catalog mm. showing how different these women's lives were mm. all at the same time to just kind of celebrate the diversity of history and mm-hmm. challenge narratives that privilege certain histories over others. Yeah, and I think it's just so fun, especially now looking through your website, which mm-hmm. is where you can, what's the website called? Is it Women, Women of a Thousand AD? Yeah, mm-hmm. so you can look that up. But it's really fun just to go through and look at, you have a map Yeah. Uh-huh. with all of the different places and stories mm-hmm. and from my research world, realizing that Augustine, Gregory Nyssa, and St. Patrick were all alive, like, within the same 100 years of each other, right? Wow, yeah. And uh-huh. one in in Africa, one in Ireland, one in Cappadocia. Mm-hmm. And there was something just kind of fascinating to yeah. me about thinking about how different their stories were, and you've kind of done that on a massive scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a minute. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's like being able to go in a little time machine to all yeah. these different places, and to imagine how diverse all their experiences were, and seeing kind of maybe the connections between some, Mm -hmm. the diversity in some, Mm -hmm. and thinking about the fact that just as in that time, there were all these different experiences, there are also different experiences now. Yes, exactly. um, And stories. So it's really fun. So Mm -hmm. I thought what we would do is, to give people a taste of this, Mm -hmm. is to explore, we'll do at least two of the women, Mm -hmm. Um, and then everyone, you really should go check out... Meg's website, mm-hmm. and you have a calendar. Yes, there is a 2020 wall calendar, which is for sale mm-hmm. now. I guess we can put the link in mm-hmm. somewhere. 
And so it's a wall calendar with my most recent 12 illustrations. So, you know, stories ranging from China to Polynesia to France to what we now call New York. Mm. This is all over the world and different stories. And there's a little blurb about each woman, but then you can read the full story on the website. Also, just because I know, because I get a lot of emails listeners, I think this would be a great resource for like kids learning history. Yeah. Also um, for adults who, like mm-hmm. I, I, especially older joke. kids, I think. Yeah, older mm-hmm. kids. Yeah, I mean, like, mm-hmm. um, I know that I have a lot of people who are kind of concerned with like launching their kids into the world with a good education. Mm-hmm. And I think this is kind of one of those like lifestyle things to just have around to be yeah. thinking about, to be aware of. Yeah, and as you said, like, you know, like teens in high school. But I, yeah. So yeah. just put in that people's brains. Yeah, thank you for mentioning that because I think it is, you know, I designed the website in a way that it can be used as a jumping off point. Like a learning resource. Yeah, yeah. so the way it's structured is I have the picture mm-hmm. and then usually a link to YouTube for background music that I think is appropriate. <laughs> thank you. I thought you'd appreciate that. And then I tell the story yeah. and I show you the map of where they yeah. are. I tell a little bit about my process of making the picture. Mm-hmm. But then at the bottom, I have a link to usually between four and six resources. Yeah. And I kind of try to mix them up. So sometimes it's academic articles. Yeah. Sometimes, though, it's like, for example, when I drew a picture set in Chaco Canyon, which mm-hmm. is currently called New Mexico, I put a link to Introduction to Pueblo Indian yeah. Tribes for Kids. Mm. And so it's like, you know, there's a real range. Yeah. Because sometimes it's like... You know, I'm talking about a place that a lot of people already kind of know about, like yeah. France. Yeah. But sometimes it's like, you know... Most of people are going to know. Exactly. The average things. education does not do a lot for pre-Columbian America. Yeah. So sometimes just having the basics yeah. and a way to connect it to current communities. Yeah. So in that way, I think it is... I hope it's a good educational yeah. resource. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I just wanted to plug it in that Thank way you. Yes. <laughs> so we'll put links in for both the calendar, which make an excellent Christmas present, and also <laughs> the website in general. So... The first lady, yes. first woman of mm-hmm. two of one thousand. I almost mm-hmm. said two thousand. That <laughs> would have been. Maybe you could have an upgrade. <laughs> so I'm like Britney Spears, and yeah. Queen Elizabeth. And Sometimes for fun, I kind of brainstorm what would they, what would they be like if they were alive now? Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> would there be a separate project? Would they have a social media account? <laughs> oh, this lady we're going to talk about. Would she for sure. The, she'd be the queen of Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> so also, was this the one we're going to talk about? Was this your first one? Yes. Okay. So, so this, give us an introduction. Okay. So this is. A lady who started it all. Her name is Sei Shonagon, and she's Japanese. And it was reading her book, um, which I have with us here, the pillow book. Um, You can get it really inexpensively because it's a penguin classic. Penguin classics are great. Yes. So I just got this for, I think, like nine pounds on Amazon or something. So the pillow book is a book that she wrote. And when I read this book, it's autobiographical. Mm -hmm. Her account of her life was so different from anything I had read before from this period. I had just finished a degree in medieval history where I specialized in Scottish history and mm-hmm. church history. And so the year 1000 is a pretty dry period for um, documentation of women's lives in a lot of Europe. Not mm-hmm. all of Europe, but certainly in um, uh, Scotland. Scotland, yep. Because yeah. <laughs> there's not a lot of documentation from that time, even of men. So when I read this book, it's so personal. It's so funny. She's very relatable. We'll read some excerpts later about her lists of irritating people. And <laughs> Again, perfect for Twitter. Exactly. Hey, wait, so, but who was she? Who what? was she? Yes, sorry, I should clarify that. Yeah. Okay, so the period that 
we're looking at for this in Japan is right in the middle of what's called the Heian period, mm-hmm. which is kind of seen as a golden age of Japan. It was mm-hmm. relatively peaceful, and it was the first real flowering from the Japanese perspective of Japanese artistic culture. Mm-hmm. It's kind of seen as a very foundational period, mm-hmm. even today in Japan. But what's really unique is that So at this point, Japan had had a lot of influence from China, but was starting to distance themselves from Mm -hmm. China. Um, In a thousand, they weren't really people going back and forth anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, They still read Chinese literature Mm -hmm. and modeled aspects of their imperial culture off of China, but they had kind of distanced themselves. And so what's really unique about Japan is that the men wrote in Chinese hmm. because it was considered the more distinguished language. Mm-hmm. And so the women weren't supposed to learn Chinese. A lot of them secretly did anyway. Mm-hmm. But they weren't supposed to write in Chinese, so they had to come up with literature in the vernacular, Japanese. Mm-hmm. But then within a 100 years or so, the distance from China culturally had grown so much that suddenly people were much more interested in the Japanese literature than the Chinese literature. So women are considered the founders of the Japanese literary tradition. That is so fascinating. Mm -hmm. And isn't technically our first novel Japanese? Yeah, sometimes considered the first novel, a woman who actually knew Seishonagon, they did not get along. Um, She and her bird book. Yeah. (laughs) Murasaki Shikibu wrote The Tale of Genji which, yeah, it's often considered the first novel. And so basically who these women are, why they're in a position to be writing this literature, is that Seishonagon and Murasaki Shikibu and others like them, it gets translated as gentlewomen, hmm. but it's kind of like ladies-in-waiting. Okay. And so the emperor of Japan was basically a figurehead. Mm-hmm. And the Fujiwara family controlled Japanese politics mm-hmm. by marrying their daughters to the emperor. Okay. So the emperor always had multiple wives who were usually cousins. Mm-hmm. And the wives were always competing to be the number one based on her father's status. Mm-hmm. And so the reason say Shonagon and Murasaki Shikibu hated each other was that they served competing empresses. Oh. And so they basically, they, a lot of it came down to her father's political role. Mm-hmm. But one of the ways the empress could try to enhance her position mm-hmm. was to gather intelligent women and artistic women. Mm-hmm. And they would kind of have salons, basically, where mm-hmm. they'd produce poetry and art and music mm-hmm. and witty commentary, basically flirting through poetry and this, stuff like and that. And I, I commented, and you could say, no, it's totally not like that. But this sounds also somewhat similar to, like, what develops with, supposedly, with Eleanor of Aquitaine. Yeah. At a, I guess that, would that have been around the same time? A little later, a little but later, yeah. But, uh-huh. but within that. Yeah, but it's still medieval. A, almost like a, a court where you're competing to be the most articulate and mm-hmm. refined. and That's exactly it. So there's connections to that. And in some ways, there's also connections to very modern phenomena, mm-hmm. like um, meme culture, where you, yeah, where you take an image and you repurpose it in a clever mm-hmm. way. That's basically what they did with poems. Huh. So it's like, who can most cleverly reference this Chinese poem but put a twist on it that makes it funny? <laughs> it's like, in a way, it was memes. <laughs> nothing, nothing new under the sun. Exactly. So it's like, in some ways, it's very medieval. Mm-hmm. But in other ways, it's that very kind modern. of... Yeah, it's very modern. And I think that's part of what makes Seishonagon's book so engaging is that even though you know i'm not japanese so you're not living in one thousand and i'm not living in a thousand so her world is very different to mine and yet she pulls you in with this relatability that you just don't find in works written by european women at the time Mm. because part of it is i think the intense influence of christianity on what Mm. was produced 
and what was copied to survive. But also in Japan, they had paper. Yeah. So you didn't have to kill it was, it was cows little, every time you wanted to rent something. It was a little more disposable. Exactly. And so even though these were women at the top of society because they served in the empress's court, they were able to write in a way that we just don't have from women in most countries at this time. Mm-hmm. So her book, The Pillow Book, is basically, it gives the impression that like it almost started off as um, something she would just take down notes. Because mm-hmm. sometimes it's lists of things with poetic associations. Hmm. So like, for example, the book opens with her talking about in spring, this is the best time of day Mm -hmm. for poetic associations. But in summer, this is the best time Hmm. of day. And it's all to do with poems that they've all read. And so it's kind of, you get the idea that at first, she's just keeping notes for herself. Well, it's like a little commonplace book. Exactly, like a commonplace book. But then it becomes more and more like a diary. Hmm. And what's interesting is that she is very... um, She's very interested in the aesthetics of court, and so she tells stories about times where she did really well in mm-hmm. aesthetic competitions, but also stories about where she thinks other people didn't do very well and is making fun of them, basically. Like, she was wearing the plum pink combination of robes in summer. Like, what an idiot. <laughs> Everyone knows not to do that. Exactly. Everybody knows that spring. Like, God, Duh. I'm embarrassed to be seen with her. <laughs> that sort of thing. And it's just so funny. Like, you're not used to... Medieval people writing like that, but they were just like us. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. So I think we should read a bit of something. Yes, that sounds good. Give people an idea of what I'm talking about. Yeah. It really does, when you're describing it, it really does sound like a petty Twitter alt of someone who hasn't identified who they are, but they're just talking a lot of... Yeah, just just talking down all of their various people. Exactly. Um, It sounds a little bit like a refined and elegant mean girl's. Yeah, it is. And it's interesting because it's like, you know, sometimes she's very snobbish Mm -hmm. and she's very judgmental. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, she'll tell stories where like you feel bad for her Mm -hmm. and you can relate to her. And like there is that kind of Twitter culture of like, or just media culture in general now. Like, oh, we don't all want to admit that we think these really petty things, Mm -hmm. but we can all retweet it because we've all been there. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So... Tell us, tell us some relatable things. So, um, I'm going to give you uh, kind of two sides of her personality. Okay. So we're going to start with the kind of sassy side. Petty <laughs> <That is> silly. <laughs> yes. But also relatable. So first I'll tell you about some of her kind of negative observations, mm-hmm. and then we'll move into some of the other ones. Mm-hmm. So this is a couple of things from her list of, I'll just kind of put a couple together, dispiriting things. Things people despise Mm -hmm. and infuriating things. Great. So, (laughs) dispiriting things. A dog howling in the middle of the day. The sight in spring of a trap for catching winter fish. Robes in the plum pink combination when it's now summer. (laughs) A square brazier on the hearth with no fire lit in it. A scholar whose wife has a string of daughters. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny because it's like, you know, she's... The other thing is she's commenting on gender things in her time. Like, Murasaki Shikibu was the daughter of a male scholar, and um, her brother just couldn't learn Chinese at all. And her father would always say, I wish you had been born a boy, because Uh, you're so smart. He's like, this is a waste. (laughs) But then, of course, now nobody remembers Murasaki Shikibu's brother. No, they don't Murasaki Shikibu. (laughs) And so then um, we've also got, I think this one's relatable. A little child's nurse has gone out, promising that she won't be long. 
You do your best to keep the child entertained and comforted, but when you send the word saying, please hurry, back comes a message to the effect that she won't be able to return this evening. This is not just dispiriting, it's downright hateful. <laughs> oh my gosh. Who would have thought that you'd get a woman in Japan a thousand years ago writing this, but it's totally relatable. It's very relatable is exactly the right word. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Wow. She also includes things people despise. People who have a reputation for being exceptionally good-natured. <laughs> it's, it's so petty, but it's very relatable. Oh, who was I talking with the other day about, oh my gosh, I read this quote from somebody uh, mm-hmm. about when you're like preparing to look out a train window and you're really excited about it, and then one of your wonderful, very kind, but also hateful friends comes by and wants to talk to you. But it's like a universal experience uh-huh. of like, I should like them. But right now, oh, I kind of wanted to be alone. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. So here's a couple more of her infuriating things. Oh, good. A guest arrives when you have something urgent to do and stays talking for ages. That's kind of what you were talking about. (laughs) If it's someone you don't have much respect for, you can simply send them away and tell them to come back later. But if it's a person with whom you feel you must stand on ceremony, it's an infuriating situation. (laughs) Which is so true. It's like, you know, if your boss comes by on the street and you're like, you have to talk to them. Oh my gosh. But then other times the irritation's relatable, but her circumstances are so different. So, you know, they would be writing in calligraphy. Mm-hmm. Um, so she says one of the infuriating things is a hair has got stuck onto your inkstone and you find yourself grinding it in with the ink stick. Also, the grating sound when a bit of stone gets ground in with the ink is very infuriating. Just the worst. I know. As we all know. Exactly. Another one is not in this passage I've picked, but she says, um, so Japanese women at the time would paint their teeth black uh-huh. because they would powder their faces white, and uh-huh. so yellow teeth would look really bad. True. So they would paint them black, and she says, I hate it when a woman is painting her teeth while talking to you because the brush just clicks against her teeth. And I'm like, on the one hand, you can't relate. But on the other hand, I've known people who hate talking to me when I'm brushing my teeth. Yeah, or do some kind of repetitive noise. Or yeah. Like, yeah. That's so funny. Also, this kind of makes me want to write down a list of things that I find uh, <laughs> dispiriting, hateful, or... And I'm like, would it make me more pleasant because I would get it out of my system? Or would it just make me... Would it just encourage that petty side of myself? It is kind of like, um, mean culture can be an outlet for people mm-hmm. to do that, too. It's funny, I keep relating it to memes, but it's, it's true. Like, yeah. um, you know, like, you'll see memes, like, introvert memes and yeah. stuff like that. Or um, I find that there's a lot of stuff, quote-unquote, British memes. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, really, just anybody who's mildly irritated can relate to this. It's yeah. not just British. But, like, you know, they're kind of like, oh, I have to be polite, but yeah. secretly I'm thinking this. Like, yeah. I think everybody can relate to that, no matter how well-meaning you are to yeah. other people. And it's kind of like an outlet for that. Yeah, and so people share it and like... Okay, yeah. so I have a question about this, and mm-hmm. I don't know if you have an answer to this. Do you think that she expected people to read this? Or do you think that it really was a journal that she didn't expect people to read? That's a very good question. So sometimes she complains in such a way that you can tell other people have been reading it. Mm-hmm. Like she'll say, um, other people have criticized me for not including this flower in my list of poetic flowers, but have you ever seen that plant in the winter? It's disgusting. So <laughs> fair. She's kind of defending herself. And so the book was clearly written in bits. Okay. And maybe they some read it aloud or Yeah, and there is a sense and she kind of she's one of those like false humility. Like she's mm-hmm. like, oh, this um man came in, he's like some you know, he works for the Emperor and he snatched 
the copy of my book for me, and I was so distraught that anyone would see it. But on the other hand... You're like, you take huge pride in this. Yeah. Let's be real. And it was important to her reputation. And the other thing that's really interesting and makes this book so poignant is that even though she talks about negative things in the sense that negative interpersonal Mm -hmm. interactions, the empress she served, by the time she was writing a lot of Mm -hmm. this... The Empress's father had died. Mm. She had been eclipsed by her Mm. cousin. You know, she was getting shunted around, even though she was still one of the Emperor's wives. And in the later, in the end of the year 1000, she actually died in childbirth. Mm. But Seishanagon never writes about those sad Mm. things. At the time she's writing this, her best friend, the Empress, is dead. Mm. And the wonderful court life she described isn't there anymore. And so there's Mm. this sense that... She also expects people to read it in the sense that she's trying to memorialize mm. the Empress. And her relationship with the Empress is at the core of mm. the book. You know, the men come and go, but her friendship with the Empress sisterhood exactly is really key. And so there's this sense that she's trying to make the best of things mm. and talk about all the happy times they all had together mm. and present it to the outer world as don't remember Empress mm. Taishi as this tragic woman who was eclipsed and then died in and then died exactly it's like remember how radiant she looked mm. at this festival remember how special it felt for her to exchange poems with you mm. telling you how much she missed you and wanted you to come back to court you know don't think about how the emperor repudiated her mm. remember the time that you saw them sneak out of her mm. room together and shushed you so they could watch the world go by for a few minutes mm. without having to deal with being emperor and empress. Wow. So there's this real sense of poignancy to it. So in that sense, I think she definitely expected people to read it. Yeah. And she was writing it to try to make... Kind of his- eulogize and memorialize. Yes. And make history fall on the side of a woman who history had turned against. Mm. That's mm-hmm. really beautiful. And also, I think... As you're talking about that, you know, it can be easy, this is a silly way to imagine this, but I remember when I was a kid having this sudden realization that everything prior to 1950 was not actually in black and white in real life. Mm. Do you ever remember thinking (laughs) that? Um, But that's a silly example, but I think there can be this kind of distancing effect when we think about moments in history. Yeah. But when you hear the story and you hear about her friendship with the Empress, when you read these lists, mm-hmm. it's like you said, it's very relatable. It makes mm-hmm. you realize their lives were animated with all of the passions and pettiness and griefs and mm-hmm. very different contexts than us, but those human impulses to survive, mm-hmm. to love, to have friendships, to compete with each other. Mm -hmm. There's that sense of all that coming to life and being very present. I think that's a really good observation. And I think that's one of the reasons that I'm so passionate about history. Mm. Because I think when you're able to connect to people of the past, not only does it help you understand how we got where we are, Mm. but it also helps you connect better to people of the present. Mm -hmm. Because even within your own culture, time separates you from the people of the past. So I'm not instantly able to relate to a medieval nun. Yeah. Even though I come from a European background. Yeah. And so it's like, when you can relate to people through time, you realize that you can relate to people in your own time in a different way too. Well, and you start, if you look back on this and you think about how kind of tragic but noble it is that Mm -hmm. she was trying to paint this beautiful, humorous picture of Mm -hmm. a life that had already gone past her, Mm -hmm. it can kind of help you think, what are the stories like that around me? Like, people right now are in the process. They're in the living through of those Mm -hmm. kinds of struggles and triumphs and weaknesses and fallings. 
it helps you when you see that kind of narratively in the past, mm-hmm. it helps you recognize that that is happening in the people around you. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. It kind of increases empathy, historical empathy. Exactly. It's about it's increasing empathy. That's exactly it. Okay, so I feel like there's a few more quotes we need. For yes, them. yes. And then I guess we should talk about the second. Yeah. We can just talk all day. <laughs> I know. Say Shonen and I'll never stop talking about her. She's no. so interesting. But I'll give you a couple more of her um, infuriating quotes. But then the last one is a little more pathos of um, things that make her excited. Hmm. Um, but first, let's hear a little bit more about what annoys her. <laughs> a baby who cries when you're trying to hear something. A flock of crows clamoring raucously, all flying around chaotically with noisily flapping wings. Crows were not poetic birds for her. (laughs) A dog that discovers a clandestine lover as he comes creeping in and barks. (laughs) And then um, a man you've had to conceal in some unsatisfactory hiding place who then begins to snore. It's the worst. I know. I hide a man in my garden and he snores. That's a good one How dare he? Yeah, she definitely had um, marriage and stuff was a little more fluid for them. Mm-hmm. And so she definitely had different lovers at court. And she's mm-hmm. kind of coy about it. Like, she never talks about their physical attributes at all. Mm-hmm. She really cares about how they dress. Mm-hmm. And, like, oh, that man, he, like, was wearing the finest silk. and He didn't wear plum and whatever it was. Exactly. He, he was in the right season all the time. Good, good. And so she doesn't tell personal stories about mm-hmm. them. She usually tells about the flirting lead-up. Like, mm-hmm. I sent him this poem, and then he sent me this one. <laughs> and she actually dumped a guy when he couldn't keep up with her poetry. Flirting. Fair. Frankly, <laughs> fair. She's like, you're just not in my league, buddy. <laughs> but then when she gives these little hints about lovers, it's like sometimes she's, you know making things up from her imagination. Mm-hmm. But sometimes you wonder if she's talking about men she's actually been with. Like, yeah, she probably knows what it's like to be... Because yeah. everybody knew they had men, but you were kind of supposed to hide it. Mm-hmm. And so this idea of, like, hiding him, but then he snores, it's like, that probably happened to her. <laughs> You're like, you might be speaking from experience. And then, like, you know, she says, this is very relatable. You've just settled sleepily into bed when a mosquito announces itself with that thin little wail and starts flying around your face. It's horrible how you can feel the soft wind of its tiny wings. Hmm. And then, um, I hate it when, either at home or at the palace, someone comes calling whom you'd rather not see and you pretend to be asleep, but then a well-meaning member of the household comes along and shakes you awake with a look of disapproval at how you dozed off. (laughs) I didn't doze off. This was intentional. (laughs) I was avoiding him. And then um, the last one of her irritating things is um, a man you're in a relationship with speaks admiringly of some woman who was once his lover. This rankles even if the affair is now safely in the past. You can imagine how much more enraging it would be if she were actually a current lover of his. Still, there are also some situations in which it doesn't really bother you. coffee with this woman yeah you do like, get her opinion then you don't want to read what she writes about you afterwards no, but <laughs> no it's be a fly on the wall a mosquito exactly. on the wall. but then for kind of the softer side of her personality mm-hmm. i've got a few quotes from the soft side and then just one funny one to mm-hmm. end with from her so this is things that make your heart beat fast and that mm-hmm. means kind of like with excitement mm-hmm. the happiness a sparrow with nestlings mm-hmm. going past a place where tiny children are playing lighting some fine incense and then lying down alone to sleep, Hmm. looking into a Chinese mirror that's a little clouded. A fine gentleman pulls up his carriage and sends in some request. Hmm. To wash your hair, apply your makeup, and put on clothes that are well-scented with incense. 
Even if you're somewhere where no one special will see you, you still feel a heady sense of pleasure inside. That is so relatable. It is so relatable. Like sometimes going to a party, the best part is when you're dressed up alone before you go. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. This one is really cool. Her final one of things that make your heart beat fast. One night, when you're waiting for someone to come, there's a sudden gust of rain and something rattles in the wind, making your heart suddenly beat faster. Mm. That sense of like, you know, it's rainy and you're anticipating Danger something. And yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, I just think they really need to adapt this as a movie. Because like that's they such do. a cinematic moment. She really has an eye for what we'd consider cinematic mm. moments. Yeah. Oh, that's so beautiful. Also, relating to the dressing, mm-hmm. um, sometimes when I'm in the final throes of a chapter and I, like, cannot leave my house, mm-hmm. or I know that no one will see me, but I'm going to go to a coffee shop or something, mm-hmm. sometimes I do that, where I, like, dress nicely, mm-hmm. despite not seeing anyone, just mm-hmm. because it kind of makes you seem, it makes you feel like there's some order and loveliness in the world. Yeah, and that you're competent and you can do also, something. Also, I feel like this is, you know, they always say, women, dress for women, don't dress for men. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, she definitely probably dress for men, but... She'd probably also advocate that general attitude. Yeah, well, that's a good point because actually um, most of their interactions with men, they were separated by screens, Mm. but the men couldn't usually see most of their outfits, but they would wear um, these really long sleeves Mm -hmm. and their sleeves would be like... So the sleeves strategically kind of draped. Oh yeah, and so like she writes about how like ooh like you know you see a carriage go by and the women have let out their sleeves or like we put our sleeves out the window and we're really annoyed that no important men noticed our us. <laughs> I know <laughs> it's, so it's the worst when you wear beautiful sleeves. And no and important so, men them. You know they wore what was called the twelve layered robe. Wow. And so they would be wearing a lot of layers. Not always twelve, but that a lot. And they would layer the colors in Mm. combinations that match the season Mm. or had poetic resonance. Mm. And so it was kind of, they dressed for men with their color combinations Mm. in the sense that sometimes the only way you could have your whole flirtation and he'd never even seen your face. Mm. So it wasn't about your physical attributes, but your clothing conveyed Mm. your sense of artistic taste. Wow. And that was valued. Huh. That so is so fascinating. So it's kind of dressing for men, but not in the way we think of. No. Not to make your so when she body says, attractive. When she says that of being perfumed and doing your makeup, doing your hair, mm-hmm. she really is, she's not doing that for men, she's doing that for herself. For herself and for the other women. And for the other women. Mm-hmm. Which I think has always been true. That's always my theory, yeah. is that men work out for men and women dress for women. Because, yeah, at least in our culture. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. So I'll just share one last quote from her because I think given the importance of religion Mm. in a lot of topics you talk about, this one might entertain your audience a little. Mm. So the religion they had was, it was a mix of Buddhism Mm. and Shintoism, which is the native Mm. Japanese religion. But in this one, she's talking about a Buddhist priest because the women didn't leave the palace much, but when they would leave, it was for religious excursions. Mm. So they would go on pilgrimages and they would go to hear visiting preacher. Mm -hmm. And they'd all be out in their carriages listening. But she said, usually, you know, only the people in the first couple rows could hear. The rest of us were, like, checking out the sleeves of the others and exchanging poems. (laughs) But this one I think is good. You know, she likes to give her opinions on how things Mm. should be. So she says, a priest who gives a sermon should be handsome. (laughs) After all, you're most aware of the profundity of his teaching if you're gazing at his face as he speaks. If your eyes drift elsewhere, you tend to forget what you've just heard. So an unattractive face is the effect of making you feel quite sinful. <laughs> well, that's quite 
the spin? That's not the spin. I will be sinful if you are not attractive. Well, what a lady. What a lady. Very entertaining. So you can see how when I read her book, I was like, okay, I need to learn more about just how much I don't know about mm-hmm. women, women, of, yeah. women of a thousand. All right, so I feel we probably can't go as into depth, but mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. had another conversation for another yes. woman of 1,000. Mm-hmm. Tell us a bit about her. Okay, so this is kind of a story of two women, and I apologize, I don't speak Arabic, so I might mispronounce their names, but let's shift gears to Egypt. Mm-hmm. A woman called Sit al-Mulk mm-hmm. and her spy, Takarub. Mm-hmm. So Egypt at this time... Sita Mulk, she's the main one I'll be talking about. Her, she was part of the Fatimid mm-hmm. Empire. So, you know, Islamic history is an area I've been learning a lot about through mm-hmm. this project. So, apologies if I slightly misrepresent something because I'm still learning. But basically, they had kind of split off from mm-hmm. some of the other caliphates and had started to dominate a lot of North Africa mm-hmm. um, and some other regions. And so, she was the daughter of a caliph called Al Aziz. So the caliph, you know, he was like the ruler, and they had loads of wives. But Mm -hmm. her mother was his favorite wife. And what's interesting is that their wives were often not Muslim because most of their wives were slaves. Mm -hmm. And you could not enslave a Muslim person. So Sital Mulk's mother was a Christian. Mm -hmm. She was a Byzantine Christian. And she was her husband's favorite wife. And Sital Mulk was his favorite child. Mm -hmm. And so he built an entire palace for his daughter. Wow. Across from his, just across the street in Cairo. Again, very relatable. Yeah. <laughs> and she's definitely a wealthy lady. So Sita Mulk is interesting. Basically, the women in the Fatimid family were usually not allowed to marry. Hmm. Why, why was that? I think it's because there was a fear that they would create rival dynasties. Hmm. And the caliph already had problems with his sons hmm. fighting it out. So he's like, I can't deal with, like you know, my grandson trying yeah. to claim it. So what that meant though, was that the women had a lot more wealth than the men mm. because, and I read one scholar who said maybe it was almost in compensation for the fact that they couldn't get mm. married. They could own property and get revenue off their properties in a way that mm. the sons didn't. The sons were more restricted to try to keep them from being too competitive with each other. Mm. Obviously they were all really wealthy still, yeah. but she was much wealthier than her brother. But her brother, Al-Hakim, became the caliph when her father died. Now, what's interesting about Sita al-Mulk, and one of the reasons I drew her, she was one of the first ones I drew in the project, is um, she's definitely a schemer. Hmm. And, you know, she made some choices that we might not consider fully moral, Hmm. but they were often motivated by things we might be able to sympathize with. Hmm. So when her brother became caliph, he was like... I think like 12 or 13 or something. Okay. He was very young. So there was a power vacuum. Somebody who can be his regent. Which control. often, you see that happening often. When exactly. When this kind of thing takes place. Yeah. And that's often how women in this period across Eurasia really assume power. Mm. Because it's like, you know, he's my son and he's a baby, so I'll try to rule for him. Yeah. And there's always competing factors, but sometimes that's how you get a woman in power in this mm. period, I've noticed. And in Africa as well. She's in Africa. But so what happened was she tried to stage a coup as soon as her brother became caliph. But her brother had a teacher who was a eunuch called Barjawan. Again, I might not be saying that right, but Mm -hmm. I think that's how you say it. I learn all these names by reading, so I don't know (laughs) how to say them always. Typical bibliophile's problem. Exactly. But so Barjawan was able to 
stop her coup and then kept her under very tight control because she was seen as a threat. And so, for example, one reason she had to really resent Barjawan was that he invaded her privacy a lot to try to ensure that she wasn't trying to have a son on the mm. side. And so she was mm. kind of closely surveilled in mm. a way that really rankled her. I mean, it would bother anybody, but yeah. she was the woman who had a palace built for her, so she wasn't about to yeah. take she control bow down to this. Exactly, yeah. to mm. this Barjawan. So actually what I drew in the mm. year 1000 is um, Sita Mulk had thousands of slaves. Mm. And, you know, I'm not an expert on the history of slavery at all, but slavery in this period is kind of more like indentured servitude. Mm-hmm. It's not exactly like chattel slavery, what mm-hmm. happened to African peoples in the transatlantic slave trade. Mm-hmm. So it was probably a carryover from Byzantine and even Roman. Exactly. Kind of and like, you know, like there are Christians, like Ireland had slavery. Mm-hmm. And so it is a legal unequal status. And for women, it often did still lead to exploitation. But I think what's important to keep in mind is that it was a little different than what we think of today. Mm-hmm. And so Takaru was actually also extremely wealthy. Hmm. So much so that when she died, she led all of her extensive wealth to another one of Sita Mulk's slaves. Huh. So it's kind of, you know, it can be a little difficult for us to conceptualize. Imagine both a slave who then has tons of property. Exactly. And, you know... Um, and exercises some measure of agency. and Yeah, exactly. And so she, you know, she didn't have a choice but to work for Sita Mulk. But she you kind of get the sense that she was also Sitomuk's closest friend because mm-hmm. Takaru had also served her mother. As we'll see later in her story, as we'll see, she became very paranoid later in life mm-hmm. and was always having people assassinated, basically. We'll get to that in a minute. You'll Thanks see why. Thanks to the best of us. Thanks to the best of us. But Takaru was her spy and her mm-hmm. confidant and her informant. And, you know, there's a lot we don't know what the relationship was like, mm-hmm. but clearly it was a very close personal one because Sitomuk left her so much of her wealth. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so what happens in the picture I drew is that Takarub has come to tell Sita Mulk that Barjawan has been assassinated. Oh, wow. This happened in the spring of a 1000. Mm-hmm. And I drew Sita Mulk looking like she's not particularly surprised by this mm-hmm. because this was the first of many assassinations in the Fatimid Empire that she was suspected to be involved in, but it could never be proven. Huh. Because um, the caliph, her brother, said it was on his orders. But what happened then was that the reason I think Sita Muk was interesting for my Women of a Thousand project is because a thousand is the year her fortunes really start to turn. Mm-hmm. Because for a few years, she becomes the regent, basically, for mm-hmm. her brother. Not officially, but he doesn't make any decisions without running them past her first. Mm-hmm. He lets her kind of do what she wants. But things turn. And this is where I think Sita Muk, in spite of all her assassination drama, this is, I think, the most sympathetic part of her character comes in this part of the story. Al-Hakim was considered kind of an unstable monarch. Mm-hmm. I'm not an expert in this part of the history, so I don't know how biased that mm-hmm. account is. But basically, he had a lot of rebellions mm-hmm. in different parts of the empire. And to fund the rebellions, he started seizing the property of the palace mm-hmm. women. Mm-hmm. And so taking away some of their wealth to because, try to fund and probably it. because of that um, dispersion of the wealth that women had over men that you were describing earlier, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. There had been this pattern of women being given a lot of money and property, and he started trying to undo that. And he started passing very restrictive rules. Like he said, women can't wear jewelry. Women can't drink wine. Mm-hmm. He even said women shouldn't go outside. Wow. And 
you know, through Islamic history, there's a lot of variation in those kinds of rules, but that's mm. definitely falling on the very strict end. Mm. And it's not the way things had been before. Women had been free to wear jewelry outside and to go outside. And Sita al-Muluk living in her palace was definitely drinking wine. Like, yeah. she was not a fan of these. And another thing that really bothered her was that he started becoming very punitive towards Christians and Jews in mm. the Fatimid Empire. So he said, you know, something that's kind of, disturbingly reminiscent of later history mm. he said they have to wear different colored shoes mm. and you know they have to pay these penalties and there was like violence against them and Sita Mulk although she herself was a Muslim was kind of an important interfaith figure her mother had been Christian she had all sorts of Christian contacts like mm. a lot of the men who were kind of on her side within the administration were Christian and so she kind of was much more like her father in wanting to facilitate more of an interfaith environment, mm. still with Islam as the most important one, but not persecuting others. Yes. And so what happened was when her brother, he also decided to make some random distant relation of his, the heir, and he kicked all of his concubines out of the palace. Yikes. And so, yeah, not cool. And so Sital Mulk sheltered mm. one of his wives and her little son. And then her brother mysteriously disappeared <laughs> in the 1020s. And nobody was ever able to prove that it was her. I mean, certainly she didn't do the deed herself. Yeah. But there was definitely a feeling that she was involved. <laughs> For her, obviously, the idea of assassinating your brother is terrible. Yeah. But it's interesting. I think there is this sympathetic aspect to her of... He was restricting women's rights. He was he persecuting, was persecuting other, religions. other religions. And for her personally, he was taking all her money, which was also, to be fair, probably a big motivating factor. <laughs> but when he, she had taken in this wife and son of his, mm -hmm. and so when he was out of the picture, she installed her, you know, like, child's nephew as huh. the caliph, but she ruled as his regent huh. for the rest of her life. Wow. And she undid a lot of her brother's laws. And That's so fascinating. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. And she even took a huge interfaith step, not just on doing what her brother did, mm -hmm. but actively pursuing interfaith dialogue. She invited the patriarch of Constantinople. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Which is like... Um, it's like the Pope, it's like the Pope of, the of the Orthodox people. people. Yeah. She invited him to Cairo. Wow. And, you know, she made it so that women could drink wine and leave their house and wear jewelry. Like... All good things. Exactly. And, like, kind of... Stored a lot of the rights of Christians and Jews. Mm. So I think, you know, she's a complex figure. Obviously, she did things that we don't consider moral. But, yeah. but at the same time, and she did do some of it out of a place of entitlement. Yeah. But at the same time, she used her power for some good things. Yeah. Well, you can see that there's kind of this tension in her life of she definitely was a fearsome and skilled protector of her own interests. Yeah. Uh-huh. But that seems to have also had implications for protecting the interests of others. Yes. And in some ways, in ways that don't seem like they were purely self-interested. Like, mm -hmm. to what extent was giving rights to Jews and Muslims uh, beneficial to her? Yeah, exactly. Because yeah, she, yeah. she was Muslim. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it didn't affect her rights. I think it's also really interesting to learn about this period with kind of the relationship between Jews, Muslims, and Christians. Mm -hmm. Because we have such a ingrained kind of picture of that area now and mm -hmm. how the religions interact. But this summer I read, have you read, I think it's On the Holy Mountain by Tom, or Dalrymple, William Dalrymple? No, I haven't read that. So it's about this journalist who took a trip through, I'm trying to think of who the 
author was, but it was basically this pilgrimage journal that was written by someone kind of right at the Byzantine time mm-hmm, period. Mm-hmm. And the thing that really opened my eyes about this book, so he goes through that ancient pilgrimage, yeah. but then he was doing it in the 90s, right? So it's right. Like right in the middle of the yeah. 90s war and all these mm-hmm. different things. And we have this very strong picture of like there being a lot of violence between mm-hmm. religions. And of course, that is a part of the history. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. in this time period, you actually see a lot of times in which people just existed yes. together. And, mm-hmm. and also, like, even when we think of Islam and Christianity, we think of this completely separate. But mm-hmm. the first, like, treatise you have on Islam is it's being condemned as a heresy mm-hmm. by Christians, mm-hmm. which means that they actually thought that they were, like, Christians, but not shoot. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so I think that it's really fascinating to learn about this time period and kind of correct some of our mm-hmm. monolithic understandings of what the relationship between Islam and Christianity and Judaism was in the Middle East. Which is not mm-hmm. to say that it's ever simple, because it's not, mm-hmm. and there was a lot mm-hmm. of violence and this and that, but there's also, it's not as simple as we, we sometimes imagine it to be. I think you're exactly right, and one of the reasons I was glad that when you looked through the different women on the mm-hmm. website, that you highlighted Sid al-Mulk's story as mm-hmm. one that your mm-hmm. listeners would be interested in. I was really glad, actually, because... Um, I hadn't thought about her in a while because it was one of the first mm-hmm. ones I did. But one of the things that has really, you know, I got in, part of the reason I got into this project was I got out of my medieval history degree, mm-hmm. having studied the Western Christian Church mm-hmm. and Scotland in a lot of detail, but feeling like there were huge parts of the world I still knew so little mm-hmm. about. And, you know, I call myself a historian. I feel like I have a responsibility to learn the history of other mm-hmm. places in order to say that. And one of the things, one of my biggest blind spots before the project, and one of the things that I've enjoyed learning about and has opened my eyes and challenged my ideas the most, has been learning about the history of Islam in this mm-hmm. period. Because, you know, I never grew up with an Islamophobic attitude mm-hmm. in spite of growing up during the... 9-11. Exactly. Yeah. Like that period. Thankfully, I was never, my parents never encouraged us you know, whole religion accountable Mm -hmm. and to be against a whole religion. But I just had this, you know, huge blind spot. And Mm -hmm. Islam gets stereotyped because of some of the more extremist governments that are in Mm -hmm. power in only some parts of the Islamic world Mm -hmm. right now. It gets stereotyped as being very intolerant Mm -hmm. towards other religions, in particular Christianity. And it gets stereotyped as being very bad for women. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have oh, a great debt to the many Islamic feminists who have written against mm-hmm. that, who have been reading as part of this project and learning about this. I didn't come up with this on my mm-hmm. own. But one of the things that I think has been incredible is learning about how, first of all, the intellectual mm-hmm. life of the Islamic world in this period. Like, you know, I don't like the term dark ages for Europe mm-hmm. at this time, but it's like when you read about in Islamic Spain, mm-hmm. the, in, the, in Cordoba, where they had a library of like, tens of thousands of books mm-hmm. and you're like man like you know in scotland we've got iona <laughs> we got that going for us <laughs> like, it's, kinda, it's like well, you know it's not that people weren't no and you don't need books to have an intellectual and artistic life but just that sort of thing and like the tolerance like i have done spain yet in my mm-hmm. project but there's so many there i want to do because the library was run by a muslim woman who would travel to syria from spain mm-hmm. to buy books for the library and to Jewish rabbi. And I imagine yeah. it's like 10th century buddy cop comedy. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, it's so diverse. And yeah. like, you know, we don't have time to get into all the gender and sexuality and yeah. stuff. But like, you know, that caliph in Spain, he was gay. And hmm. his wife dressed as a man and ran the government for him. <laughs> like, there's so much there going yeah. on. And like, Sita Mulk, 
you know, is a case of women are never just passive recipients yeah. of history. Sita Mulk saw her, what she saw as her rights and other women's rights being restricted. And so and she Christian, did something about it. Exactly. And she did something about it. And there was room within this Islamic political structure for her to do it. And obviously, you know, that fluctuates throughout time, but that's true everywhere. And so I really think her story and the project in general is useful to counter this narrative that, first, there's two narratives I really want to counter. One, the idea that the only history we're talking about is men's history. Mm -hmm. And that is history and everything else is like an elective. Mm -hmm. and, but two, the idea that everything was just women suffering through oppression. Yeah passively until white feminism in the 20th century. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Basically. And so I think like, you know, like in places like North America, like I recently did a picture on a woman called Jigonsase mm -hmm. who founded the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. People might know them as the Iroquois. Mm -hmm. She was one of the three founders of that. And like, you know, the Iroquois, I was in New York this summer and like, you know, men had to be nominated by the women, and if the men committed violence against women, the clan mothers could remove them from office. Like, their right to rule depended on women's evaluations of their fitness for rule. And it's like, you know, compared to this predicament that, you know, there's an epidemic of indigenous women and violence against them mm -hmm. in the United States and Canada right now. That's so, you know, for lots of people, it's not this narrative of things were bad, things were bad, things were bad. Then in the 20th century, we got birth control and everything was better. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, no, no, no. For some people, what they had was actually better for women and then things yeah. got worse. Yeah. And But women never stopped fighting through yeah. that. And so... That's kind of the core passion of my project and what I've learned from doing it and what I like to share with other people by telling them about it. Yeah, I love it. And I think that you are doing good work. Thanks. And <laughs> delightful and interesting and stimulating work. So mm -hmm. keep doing it. Thank you. <laughs> and so just to remind everyone, where can they go to find all of these lovely women and more and on. So we'll put the links in, yeah. um, but basically there's the website and the Facebook mm -hmm. and the calendar. Mm -hmm. So the website is womenof1000ad.weebly.com mm -hmm. and the Facebook page, I think it's just Women of a Thousand mm -hmm. or Women of a Thousand AD. Mm -hmm. And then the calendar is on lulu.com. I just self-publish it, so it's just they print one whenever you order it. Okay. And so yeah, so those are the places you can go. The Facebook you know, you can comment and interact with that in a different way, but you get the most information on the website. Yeah. Great. Well, I hope that you will all go and check that out. There, It is a treasure trove of oh, interesting thank stories. You. So thank you for coming on today, Meg. This has been so wonderful. Oh, thank you for having me, Joy. I'm really glad to get the chance to talk about it. <laughs> I've enjoyed it so much. And thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed yes, this episode, you. go and rate and review it. That helps other listeners find it. And I hope that you will join me next week on Speaking with Joy.